Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, and we are reading verses 33 through 43 this evening. Luke 24, beginning in verse 33, and I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Let us hear now the word of God. So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy... And marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. This is the word of God. Amen. You may be seated, and let us go to the Lord in prayer now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your eternal, inspired, and infallible word uh, that guides us in what we should believe and how we should live before you. We ask that you would open up this passage to us, Holy Spirit, give us insight uh, that we might uh, know our risen Lord Christ and follow him and worship him all of our days and that this message would uh, further contribute to our strengthening of our commitment to him. And we pray this in the name of Christ, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as we continue this evening, uh, coming to the conclusion of Luke's gospel, we have before us more about the resurrection appearances of our Lord Jesus Christ. And last week, we uh, studied the disciples on the road to Emmaus and how uh, Jesus appeared to Cleopas and the unnamed disciple and opened up the meaning of the scriptures for them and unfolded the Moses and the prophets and all that the scriptures had set forth about him. And it's at that point that we pick up our passage this evening as they run back to Jerusalem, excited that they had seen the risen Christ, to tell the eleven what had happened. And so they rush back to Jerusalem and they say, we have seen the Lord, he has risen indeed. And what we have in our passage is this interaction where Jesus appears before them and they have the opportunity to even touch him and to see him in the flesh and to recognize that he really is risen physically, bodily. Uh, In his glorified body, he's appearing before them, but he's a real flesh and blood person. He's eating food. Uh, He's inviting them to touch him, to see. And so that's where we pick up. You'll remember that the Apostle John, when he wrote his first letter, he, he began his letter of 1 John with these words. He said, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. 
John is telling us, he says, I saw him, I touched him, and I am here to bear witness that it is true that this is Jesus Christ come in the flesh. He wants us to be clear that he's not delivering to us some fairy tale that's a fascinating story to think about, but that's not really true. He is speaking of things that have really taken place. And the Gospels and the resurrection appearances give us abundant proofs of the real, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, in, in our space and time. Real people, real places, real, a real stone that sat in front of the tomb, a real stone that was moved away. We need to grasp that these things really happened. And for 2,000 years now, one of the most critical truth claims of the Christian faith is that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. And so important is this belief that the Apostle Paul was willing to stake everything on it. He said, if this did not happen... Forget the whole Christian faith thing. Don't even try it. It's a waste. Throw in the towel, as we say. There'd be no point. He says we would be, of all men, most pitiable. Dying for this Lord who didn't really rise from the dead, who would do that? Who would be crazy enough to do that, he says. He's willing to stake the claim of the gospel upon the truth of this reality. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16, he says, If the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. We, we really need to confront what he says here and understand the vital significance and importance of this truth claim that we believe and that we declare to the world because without it, let's close this church, let's sell the building, let's go find something else to do because there's no reason for us to be here if the resurrection did not happen. But indeed, as we say every Lord's Day, Christ is risen and we say, he is risen indeed, and so we, we are, are clear and confirmed in these realities. And so I want to give you three topics this evening as we hit our passage. The first is we will look at our Lord's words to the disciples when he appeared to them. He says, peace to you. So we'll look at the significance of his words, peace to you. The second is we will see how our Lord invites his disciples to see that he really rose from the dead, to see the physicality of his resurrection body. And at that point, I want to take some time to address some of the common naturalistic, unbelieving explanations that have been given concerning the matter of the resurrection, that we might see the foolishness of these explanations in contrast with the truth of Scripture. And then the third is we're going to see that the resurrection was cause for joy, but the disciples still struggled to believe it. It, it really seemed too good to be true. So let's begin with the, our Lord's appearance uh, to the disciples in verse uh, 34 through 36. And the, the men from Emmaus, they come, they say, "...the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon." And they told about the things that had happened on the road... And how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. 
As you read the resurrection appearances, there are some curious details that are given to us. For example, in the Gospel of John, uh, it talks about how all the doors were locked and they were all closed and they were fearful of the Jews and Jesus came and stood amongst them. And some have made of this that perhaps Jesus' physical, resurrected, glorified body has abilities that our bodies do not have. Could Jesus go through walls? Could Jesus appear and disappear? Uh, Some of those things are rather difficult to answer, I think, with certainty. It is true that even in the Gospel of John, it doesn't say that they didn't open the door for Jesus and then close it. But the way that the Gospels present it, I think, does beg the question of why the Gospel writer draws attention to those details. For example, John 20, 19 through 20, listen to how it's put here. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week... When the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And noteworthy that here in Luke's uh, uh, presentation of the, this appearance, It's as if Jesus just appears. Uh, There's no description given to him knocking on the door, and then they came over, and they opened it, and they said, it's Jesus, let him in. It doesn't give us any of those details. It's fascinating that the gospel writers present it as if he simply appears. And so I'm not going to attempt to speculate for you on all all that we might know about Christ's physical, resurrected, and glorified body, because we don't know certain things. But we do know that 1 Corinthians 15 describes the resurrection body as a spiritual body. And that doesn't mean in contrast with the physical. It means in addition to. It's It's a greater body, and yet it's not less than physical by any means. So let's keep those things in mind, but we, we need not speculate much beyond that. But let's look now at Jesus' words. He, he comes to them, and he appears, and the very first thing he says, Peace to you. This reveals our Lord's gracious, compassionate, and patient love to his disciples. What what would you have said if you had first arrived on the scene after you had been abandoned by all the disciples? What What might have you been tempted to say? Go straight to rebuke. What were you guys doing when in my hour of need you left me? How cowardly were you when I was facing betrayal and and crucifixion where were you peter i saw you you denied me three times just as i as i said you would well we don't see jesus saying any of this peace to you we see in these simple words the love of christ for his people and we might on one hand read this statement of peace to you as just a common greeting like don't don't the people in israel they just say shalom and it's just you know it's just hey peace I think there's more going on than just a a simple greeting because Jesus has come to bring peace for his people. That it was his purpose in coming was to bring peace between us and God. And I read these statements of peace to you in light of all that the Gospel of Luke has said about peace. And so I went back through the Gospel of Luke to look at what else where else we see these declaration of peace. And the first occurrence is in Luke 1 verse 79 You remember Zechariah, he's prophesying of John the Baptist, he's prophesying of Jesus, and he says this about what the Messiah was to do. He says, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, 
to guide our feet into the way of peace. Well, that's exactly where the disciples are at this point. They are fearful. They think everything has failed. They are experiencing that place of darkness and the shadow of death. And Jesus comes to them and he says, peace to you. You can be at peace because I am risen from the dead. Chapter 2, what did the angels declare to the shepherds? We remember the words, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. This is what Jesus has come to do, is to bring peace to the earth. Yes, he brings a sword, he brings conflict as the nations are divided as to who will follow him and who will not, but he ultimately brings peace for his people and peace to the world. And even when Jesus was drawing near in the triumphal entry, the crowds uh, seemed to recognize the implications, something of the implications of this. It says in Luke 19, verse 37, as he was Now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so you take all those references in Luke and we come to this point of fulfillment. The the resurrection has occurred and what has Jesus now to declare to his people? Peace to you. And why should they be at peace? Of course, they should no longer be anxious and afraid as they previously were. They should be at peace because Jesus has risen from the dead. All that fear about the Jews and what was going to happen to them, forget all of that. That's over. Jesus is risen. He is reigning. Of course, he ascends to reign. They don't have to be anxious anymore. They don't need to be fearful anymore. The Messiah is victorious, but they're struggling to realize it at this point. And of course, the resurrection, it brings peace to the anxious and fearful heart because what are the things that we're anxious and fearful about? Well, you might be able to list a number of things you're anxious about just this week, but if you extend way beyond that, there is a problem that all of us face, and it is the problem of our deaths that will eventually come to us. How how can we be at peace if we've actually thought about that unless we have believed in the resurrection of Christ? And the resurrection then means there is hope. It means that our own resurrection is certain when we trust in Christ. It means death is defeated. It means that our labors for the Lord are not in vain. This is a fact. The historical fact of the resurrection should set our hearts at peace. And I would encourage you to think along these lines as you face anxieties, as you face present afflictions, as you face uncertainties every day. Come back to the fact of the resurrection. You need to reason something like this. Though I do not know all that the future holds, though I feel anxiety in my heart, though I am afflicted at present, yet this I know. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, and because of this I have a peace that can never be taken away from me. As Ephesians 2 says, He came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. And so Jesus, he declares peace to his disciples. He has a message of good news, but they're struggling to believe it, as we often can struggle as well as we face our own unbelief. And so as they're struggling to believe that this really is the risen Christ and it's not just some ghost and apparition... 
Jesus invites them to see that he's not just a ghost. He's not just a spirit, an immaterial uh, apparition. He is flesh and bone and blood risen from the dead. Verses 37 through 39, it says, They were terrified and, and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see. And as we read the gospel accounts, you need to remember that the disciples are not uh, what we might say stupid people. And the reason I say that is because there have been many uh, liberal writers over the, the centuries that have studied the gospels and they've tried to explain away the miracles and they say, those people back in the first century were really gullible. They would see stuff, and they thought it was really a miracle, but it wasn't. There was always a natural explanation for it. And I want you to understand that, first of all, that, that perspective is utterly arrogant and prideful. Whoever says that, it, it says more about them than it does the people of the first century. But I want to point, point out that they understood that when people die... They don't just rise from the dead and start walking around. That when people are dead, they're dead. They, they understood those things just as well as any of us do in terms of our nat, the natural way of this fallen universe. And so they see Christ and they're thinking, this can't be him because dead people don't rise from the dead. This just must be a spirit. I must be seeing something. This, this can't make any sense. And Jesus says, you can touch, you can see, you can feel and we know that some disciples were especially stubborn. Thomas uh, ended up getting, uh, inviting for himself the nickname of Doubting Thomas. It really was his fault that he got that nickname. And in John chapter 20, you remember Jesus, he invites Thomas to really explore the fact that Jesus was risen from the dead. He says, you can even touch the wounds if you want. He said to Thomas in John 20, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Brothers and sisters, we are the blessed ones if we trust in Christ, not having seen, but believed these accounts that we have tonight. And so it's clear from the gospel accounts that Jesus' resurrection was a and I'll use all the, the words, I'll stack them up, physical, space-time, bodily, real resurrection. And yet there's been many attempts to explain the, the fact of the resurrection away. Uh, unbelief is always busy trying to find new ways to explain away the works of God. And Satan, of course, uh, driving much of that. And there's been numerous theories uh, over, over the centuries as to what happened with the case of Jesus' body. Uh, if he wasn't resurrected, as these unbelievers claim, then what actually happened to him? Or how do we explain the fact of the Christian faith even arising? And one of the saddest facts of church history is that most of the theories that attempt to explain away the resurrection were not uh, formulated by Muslims or by other um, religions, but they were in fact fabricated by liberal, unbelieving, ostensibly Christian theologians or Christian biblical scholars. 
And we say ostensibly because by denying the fact of the resurrection, they abandon the very foundation of the Christian faith. But you find in, particularly in Germany, it's just one German named after another, that was the foundation of all these terrible uh, ideas uh, as to how the resurrection really didn't happen. They all had their own explanations for how this took place. And so I want to think uh, through these with you briefly that we might compare them to the clarity of truth that we have in the Gospels. So I'm going to go through four of these theories that we might think through them together. The oldest theory in, on record is the stolen body theory. And I say it's the oldest theory because it's actually in the Gospel of Matthew. <laughs> this, this one the Jews did come up with, so this wasn't uh, liberal German theologians. This is the Jews' idea. So Matthew 28, 18 through 15, right there in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew records it for our benefit that we might see. He says, guys, this is an old, old story. It's, it's not true, but you're going to hear about it. Matthew 28, verse 11. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure." So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. I've always wondered, how do the Roman soldiers feel about telling that story? I mean, it must have been a really big sum of money, because you look like a really bad soldier if you say, we were sleeping and he took the body. It's like, what kind of soldiers are you? This is, this is, this is not very good. But apparently this was the story that was propagated amongst the Jews. Matthew says, up until the time I'm writing, they've been telling the story about how the disciples stole the body. But there's a number of problems with this theory. And as I say problems, we already know that the gospel account rules out all of these explanations. But I want to see, see that there's, these are unreasonable and unbiblical. First of all, the disciples were fearful and they believed that Jesus had failed. They didn't even expect the resurrection at this point. They were so fearful of the Jews that they had locked their doors. They were hiding and it would seem incredible that they would steal the body and then proclaim this openly, inviting persecution and death upon themselves for a story that they would know that is not true. If they had stolen the body and hidden it away and then said, Jesus has risen from the dead, but he's ascended to heaven, so we can't show you the body, but we have it. Why would they invite persecution and death upon themselves for something they knew was not true? We know that people sometimes die for things that they sincerely believe are true. But it's far rarer to find any example, if you can find an example, of anybody dying for something that they know not to be true. So that's one theory, is the stolen body theory, which Matthew records for us as an explanation amongst the Jews, and one that later, later German theologians resurrected and propagated. Then there is what some call the swoon theory. The theory states here that Jesus did not really die. He was only severely wounded and then later got out of the tomb and then proclaimed himself as risen. Well, what are the problems with this? Well, first of all, the Roman executioners were very good at what they did. They knew what it meant to execute somebody and how to do it. And we see, of course, the gospel accounts describing for us that 
they were going to break his bones, but when they pierced them, the blood and water flowed out, showing that he had indeed died, and they felt no need, therefore, to break the bones, as they often did of crucified victims, uh, in fulfillment of prophecy. And we can try to reason through this, even if Jesus had been somehow survived the crucifixion, he was tortured so extensively and then put in a sealed tomb with a giant stone in front of it. How is this person going to push that stone away and run out of the tomb, past guards, appear to his disciples and say, I'm risen from the dead, except that he's bleeding and dying and has no power whatsoever? This is a crazy theory. It makes no sense, not only of the scriptural data, but it's unreasonable on so many levels. It's implausible. It's unreasonable. And then there is the third theory, the moved body theory. The idea that somebody moved Jesus' body to another tomb, and then the disciples and the women, they came and they saw an empty tomb. They said, he rose from the dead. But they had just moved the body. It was somewhere else. It was some other tomb. Well, this is one is rather easy to explain away. If the body had been moved, Joseph of Arimathea could have said, wait, guys, he did not rise from the dead. Let me show you the body is over there. You don't see anything of that happening. And additionally, it was against Jewish law to even move a corpse after it was interred into a tomb. They, they weren't allowed to do that. This doesn't make any sense of the data. A fourth explanation has been given. It's called the hallucination theory. And the disciples seemed to struggle with whether this was the case themselves or whether they were hallucinating or not or what they were seeing. But the idea here is that everybody that claimed to see the risen Christ hallucinated. They didn't really see the risen Christ. They just thought they saw him and they were having hallucinations. But there are many problems with this as well. The testimony of scripture and history in general was, is that Jesus was seen by more than just one or two people. We are told by Paul in 1 Corinthians that he appeared to over 500 people at once. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, some of these people are still alive. You can go talk to them. You can, maybe he was saying, hey, you go down to Jerusalem, you can find uh, the, the Silas that saw Jesus risen from the dead. Just ask him what he saw. He, he, he can tell you what he saw. That's what Paul is telling us in 1 Corinthians Uh, 15, he says that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the presence. He says, even up until now, there's more than the half of them that are still alive. They can tell you what took place. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, by me also, as one by one born out of due time. Now, when it comes to hallucinations, let's think about this for a moment. Hallucinations, by definition, are singular and personalized events that people have. When somebody hallucinates, perhaps due to medical reasons, they lack sleep, perhaps, let's say you go four or five days without sleep, you might hallucinate. And how do you know whether you're hallucinating? Well, you, you tap the person next to you and you say, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Are you seeing that? Did you just see that? Well, all these people, 500 people, are they all hallucinating at the same time? It's crazy. And additionally, in the ancient world, any time that people would report you know, visions of ghosts or visions of the dead, they would, under, they would understand these to be people not risen from the dead because resurrection was not a common belief in the ancient Roman world at all. Of course, the Jews had a, a doctrine of resurrection, but they didn't expect anybody to rise until the final resurrection, 
And so these people, as you see even here in the Gospel of Luke, they're thinking this must be just a spirit. This can't really be the risen Christ. And yet all the scriptural data tells us, no, he, was, he is risen from the dead. You're not seeing things you can touch. Everybody else is seeing him. Hundreds of witnesses, 500 witnesses have seen the risen Christ. And an additional problem with the hallucination theory is this. It does not explain the question of the empty tomb. If you have 500 people hallucinating, somebody can still go and produce the body for everybody to see and say, he did not rise from the dead. Here he is. And yet we see nothing of that in scripture or history. And so in reviewing these things, I hope that we can see that the clarity of Scripture, the harmony of Scripture in setting forth the resurrection uh, is quite clear to us. When we look at history, when we look at Scripture, which is inspired history, we see that the very best explanation, indeed the only explanation, is that Jesus really did rise from the dead. It explains the matter of the empty tomb. It explains the testimony of so many that saw him risen from the dead. And so as we review these theories, I hope you see the ridiculousness of these attempts to get away from the clarity of this fact that is revealed for us in Scripture. And so the next question for us, brothers and sisters, is do we believe the things that we read here? Are we the unbelieving ones who just say, it couldn't be, it can't be? Or do we embrace the truth of the resurrection? Do, do you find in the resurrection of Christ your only hope to overcome the otherwise insurmountable problem of death that you face? Do you find that your only way to be set free from sin is by partaking of the resurrection life of Jesus Christ and dying with him and then rising again to newness of life? Is that your hope? Do you commit yourself to following the risen Lord no matter what difficulties you will meet with due to that commitment because you are firmly convinced of the truth of his resurrection? What was it that Paul was uh, testifying to in, in Acts, in the later chapters of Acts? They said, well, Paul affirms that that man Jesus that was crucified is alive. That was one of the things that was recorded of Paul's testimony. Paul just maintains that Jesus is alive. And it was the truth of this resurrection and the empowering of the Holy Spirit that enabled Peter and the other apostles to stand fast for Christ, boldly. Uh, boldly and fearlessly as they testified to what had taken place. They said, Jesus is risen from the dead. We've seen him with our own eyes. The scriptures declare that it was to be so. Now repent and be baptized and believe the gospel, and you will be saved as well. There's no, there was no backing down from that message. And so, brothers and sisters, I want us to see the, the essential importance of answering these questions. You have two options. If the resurrection did not happen, it would be appropriate for you to conclude that your life is a lost cause and you have no purpose at all. It's best in that case, as Paul says, to eat and drink and tomorrow we die. Have as much fun as possible and then exit this world and there will be nothing else for you. That's it. But if the resurrection did happen, as the scriptures say it did, and as we know it did because the scriptures say it, then you can live a life of purpose, of hope, and of peace. And so I hope by putting it as starkly as I can, you see how important it is to come to a settled conviction about these things. You can't just leave this sitting out here. It says, yeah, there's these claims about resurrection. We say it every week. I'm just going to leave it out there. 
You've got to come to a faith conviction. You've got to respond to this message because the very purpose of your life, the very destiny of your life hangs in the balance. So finally in this passage, we'll look at the disbelief of the disciples and we'll close with this. In verse 41 through 43, it says, while they still did not believe for joy and marveled. It's a very strange phrase here in the translation. They still did not believe for joy. And that's exactly, of course, what the original text says. And it seems to be suggesting that they were so joyful about this idea of Jesus being risen from the dead. It was too good to be true, as I've said a few times before. It was as if they couldn't really embrace it and grasp it because it was seemingly too good to be true. And yet they were joyful in it. And there are times in life where we, we start thinking about things, we get joyful about it, like, oh, if this could only be. And then we're disappointed a few seconds later when we realize that's it's not true, it, it's not. Uh, but that's not the case with the resurrection. When it comes to the resurrection of Christ, there is a solid foundation for joy. Because it did actually happen. The news really is good news. It's news that will not disappoint you and evaporate into thin air as a fairy tale. It is news that you can build your life upon. And so, brothers and sisters, we have cause for rejoicing every time we reflect upon the resurrection. And I hope that as we come away from Luke 24, that in the weeks to come we'll say, Christ is risen indeed with all the more joy in our hearts, knowing what he has done for us. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you as the exalted, risen, and glorified Lord over all things. We thank you that by faith we also partake of your death and your resurrection, rising to newness of life. Even in the present age, we we begin to walk out this newness of life, and we look forward to the day in which you return, and then that final resurrection comes, and death will be no more. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus, Uh, Grant, Holy Spirit, that this message would rest upon our hearts and be with us throughout the week. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.